0: Our Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather together this first Lord's Day of 2024. We thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to you, to come together with your people, to exhort one another to love and to good deeds. We thank you for the reminder of the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And Father, as we gather, we pray for your kingdom and for your glory this day. There are so many who gather under the sound of the gospel. Even in this very complex, there are two churches around. We pray for them. We pray for the one across the street. We pray for the ones across the world. Some have already gathered on the other side of the globe, and others are about to gather. Father, we pray that your kingdom may come that your word may be preached faithfully, that the tents of Israel may be expanded as people come into the knowledge of Christ. And we also pray for us that you have mercy on us, and by your Spirit, your read and explained word may be unto the glory of our Savior and unto our edification. We commit ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Please turn to Psalm 90. Let us read together the Word of God. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return, to, you return man to dust and say, So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad in our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And that is a reading of God's word. This is the first Sunday, the first Lord's Day of 2024. As the earth embarks in that journey, elliptical journey of 584 miles around the sun. And it is completed 365 days and a quarter. That's why this year is also a leap year, because every four years you have to adjust for that quarter of a day as the earth traverses around the sun. And I thought this was a good day to meditate on Psalm 90. Psalm 90 that speaks of God's eternity and of man's transient nature. Psalm 90 that reminds us of time. And how frail and short it is as it passes through us. That precious commodity that cannot be sold, cannot be purchased. Cannot be stored, cannot be stolen. That precious commodity that we all receive at the same rate. And yet, it is gone. You cannot add to it, you cannot subtract, you cannot multiply it, you cannot divide it. This psalm has four movements. Now, as I always tell you, when I give you an outline, this is my thing. Many times it comes out of the text. Many times it's just a preacher's device to help us remember. But if you read the psalm, it's a poem, it's a song, it seems to have four movements. God, in His eminence, in His eternity, God in His, uh, I should have said transcendence. (laughs) Now God in His eminence, in how He deals with man, with mankind, in our time nature. And then it has a prayer. As we consider God and consider the frailty of man, we have a prayer at the end. When it speaks of God, notice the way it starts. It says, God has been our dwelling place through all generations. The one who wrote this psalm is the same one who wrote the Torah. And the Torah, those, those first five books of the Bible, start in Genesis. And it's fascinating to me that this psalm of Moses, probably the oldest psalm in Scripture, starts exactly as Genesis starts. God. God. God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. God has been our refuge and our strength throughout all generations. What was Moses thinking about when he says God is our refuge and our strength throughout all generations? The text doesn't say it, but I'll present to you a speculation I think it's a biblical speculation, but we cannot say, yes, this this was in the mind of Moses because the text doesn't say it. But Moses is the one who wrote Genesis. From Adam, to whom the promise of a Savior was given right after he sinned, then to Abel, Seth, Lamech, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, and then after the flood, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, and then we find Moses himself in his generation. So I believe that Moses is thinking about those who from the beginning of time were sheltered and protected and guided and offered a Savior by God. This same Moses in Exodus describes how he met God for the first time. He sees the burning bush. The burning bush is not consumed. He draws near and he hears the word of, I am Yahweh. And who are you? Yahweh. But who is Yahweh? The God who lives in an an ever-present time? Yes, but I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. So in Moses' mind, the connection of God with his covenant people is very obvious, at least in his writings that's why I offer to you the speculation which I believe to be true that Moses was thinking about that reality that God identifies himself as the eternal God but also as the God of his people It's like if God were trying to tell Moses in from that burning bush Moses I I am the God of your family I am the God of the people you come from and I am the God of the people that I'm commanding you to get out of Egypt and bring them to deliverance. God has been our refuge and our shelter throughout all generations. God describes himself as the one who shows mercy unto thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. When my children were little, very little, three, four, five, six years old, I prayed for their spouses, And when they finally became engaged and they got to know them, I said to them, well, I've been praying for you for 20 plus years. And I also prayed for their children and their children's children. So when I met my first two new grandchildren, I was grateful that God let me see two individuals for whom I had been praying, even when my children were three and four. Why? Because God is the God of covenant mercies throughout the generations of those he calls and of those upon whom he shows mercy. And then Moses presents God in this psalm as the eternal God. Before the mountains were brought forth, before you gave birth or you created the earth, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I find that passage fascinating because it's a reminder of the reality that God exists outside of the realm we know. For us, space and time and matter are the things we know. We can think about eternity, but how exactly will the soul operate in this realm that is not material before the resurrection? And our minds get lost. But how exactly did God exist before everything? I remember being your age, I would ask my mom, but who made God? And she would say, God has been forever. God was not made by anyone. And in reality, it is the case. God exists outside that space-time continuum we know. Do you know that it is estimated, because nobody knows, that there are between 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way, our galaxy. And the Milky Way has been measured to be 90,000 light years long, that is the speed the light would travel in a year at 186,000 miles per second, 90,000 of those with 20,000 of those or 10,000 of those uh, length all the way around. Width by length. And it is estimated that there are 2 trillion galaxies. And I went into my Excel sheet and says, okay multiply for me 2 trillion by 400, by 400 billion. And I got a number that has 32 zeros. There are about 800, 6 trillion stars in the universe and then they tell you well that's what we have been able to see with the James Webb telescope. Because we thought we knew a lot when we had the Hubble. But then we threw in the James Webb and now we're seeing more. And now we believe we're just seeing a little portion of the universe. And it is unfathomable. It is a number we cannot count. We cannot imagine. We cannot fathom. We cannot devise. And yet, God is and exists above and outside that material reality we know. Theologians call this the aseity of God. God is and He doesn't need His creation. God exists and He doesn't require the praise of anyone, the honor of anyone. He doesn't need space, time. In fact He is before time was made. God is way beyond whatever we can figure or fathom. Even the staunchest agnostic says we don't know what happened before the big bang and if you want to say that the big bang was caused by something or someone well perhaps that is god but we know it was the case because in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth but the point is that this whole unfathomable universe to us is like your fishbowl if you have any You stand before your fishbowl and you see your little fishes there running around. And some of you like the big ones that are salt water and they're even larger. The universe is kind of a fishbowl to God. And it's not even a good illustration. It breaks down. When the Bible uses that word olam. From eternity to eternity. Very frequently it is used not to describe time. Because again, time is a magnitude that even varies according to general relativity. No, it is used to describe God's covenant faithfulness. The reality that God's faithfulness spans way beyond time and space. When he says, I will have mercy on those who love me upon thousands and thousands, it's because of that. Because he is eternal and his faithfulness and his being a shelter to us is from generation to generation. Remember when the Sadducees wanted to trap Jesus into the resurrection question? All oh, these women had seven husbands and in the resurrection, which of them will have them as a wife? And he told them, you ignore, you err, ignoring the scriptures and the power of God. Haven't you heard What God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac. And then Jesus added this phrase, God is not the God of the dead because all live before him. So He was telling the the Sadducees, Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, even though it's been 2,000 years they existed, they are alive for God. And that is the way his faithfulness works. It's not like ours that endures until we are alive. And how does God's eternity interact with His covenant faithfulness? Verse 4 in the psalm says, A thousand years in your sight are, but, but as yesterday when it is past, or even as a watch of the night. It's an illustration. It's a poem. Please, don't, don't try to take that and make something literal of it. But the point is that a thousand years for God it's like three hours of the night. Meaning what? That time doesn't pass for him as it passes for us. That's why he can be faithful. Because God lives in an eternal present. I remember the first time I heard that phrase. It was 1986. I was taking my first systematic theology class with Suhel Michelin, And he said, well, the eternity of God means that he lives in an ever-present. And I says, what on planet Earth is that? Well, we just sung it. John Newton, in his amazing grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less time to sing his praise than as when we just begun. Because in eternity, time doesn't pass. It is an ever-present condition. They say that a photon of light doesn't go through time because once you hit the speed of light, time stops. And the photon of light that left the sun eight minutes and a half ago has the same clock when it arrives on earth. Not eight minutes pass through it. When we are in eternity, not a second will pass through us. It will be an ever-present. We will be in His very presence. And in that presence, it is the presence of the God who is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. That's why the psalmist says you cannot hide from him. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear that is due you? Because the holy, righteous, all-knowing, omnipresent, almighty God, he's also ever-present. Our iniquities cannot be hidden from Him. That's the language of Hebrews 4.13. All things are bare before His eyes. Nothing can be hidden from His eyes. We may have two faces, right? We may have the face we show and then our real face. The real you is who you are when nobody watches. Make no mistakes. You're not what your pastors think of you. You're not what people in church think of you. You're not what your boss thinks of you. You are what you do and who you are when nobody's watching, except one that is always watching, God. We live always in his presence. We don't enter his presence. We are always in his presence. In him we are, we move, and we exist now. If we are in Christ, there is a blessing to this. We cannot disappoint God. Does it happen to you that when you sin, let's say you get angry at someone and you say things that you shouldn't have said, it takes a while to cool off and takes a while to mend things and takes a while to sort of kind of get into the groove of things again because you're still either ashamed, or angry, or offended, or whatever it is you are. Well, guess what? It doesn't happen with God. He lives in an ever-present. My sins of 35 years ago are before His eyes as if I were committing them right now. That's why I cannot disappoint Him. Because also, my Savior, according to Hebrews 7.25... Is sitting at his right hand right now. And the text says, He ever lives to make intercession for his own. There's no way a Christian, a true Christian, can disappoint God. Oh, he will discipline us as a father, of course. He will make us partakers of his holiness. And many times that will require the rod of correction. But his love for his own in Christ cannot be diminished, not even a quark of love, because Christ bought it all. Paul Washer has a very interesting statement about the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. And I felt so comforted when I heard him say that, because Washer says, guys, I don't understand that passage. If we are saved by grace, if Christ took all our sins on the cross, if all His righteousness and obedience have been, has been credited to our account, how on earth, Paul says, we shall all give an account on the judgment seat of Christ? And this is what Paul Washer says. I have no idea how that will happen. I know one thing. If I have to give an account for my Christian life, I will be utterly condemned. If God is going to gauge me for how I have lived as a Christian since September 28, 1980, up until this day, I will be utterly condemned. If God will take today's sermon and judge me on that day, I will go to hell. Just by today's sermon. But Washer says, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know my Savior and my Advocate will be standing by me. And that is the hope of God's eternity tied to his covenant mercy. And from there, the psalmist moves to the second point, which is man or mankind frailty. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your breath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, and even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Guys, we're made of dust. Scientifically proven What Genesis 2 says about the creation of mankind. The elements in our body are found on the ground. Let me make a racist statement. Adam was not white and blonde and (laughs) blue-eyed. The name means reddish, brownish. Adam was built from the mud of the ground. He was probably kind of brown. And then as people moved to the north where there's not a lot of sunlight, they became fair-skinned and blonde and blue-eyed. And as they moved down, they became darker. But Adam was made of the ground, and so are we. We are made of dust. And to dust we shall return, the text says. It's a reminder of how frail and how irrelevant we are. Do some of you have to go through the torture of those post-COVID corporate things named Teams meetings or Zoom meetings, and you just make sure you turn off your camera, and there's a guy or a lady talking what is nonsense to us, and there we are busy doing our things, and we hear our name, Edwin, what do you think? Oh, excuse me, excuse me, Uh, what was the question again? Because you're not even paying attention, you don't care, it's irrelevant to you, I have news for you. And so we are irrelevant to them. That's life. We get in 836 and there's this horde of cars. And we are worried because we're late and these guys are in the middle. You're in the middle of the guy behind you. We are as irrelevant as they are to us. We are frail. Our life is a sigh. And that's what the psalmist is pointing out. It's just a breath. Remember when Pharaoh asked Jacob, how old are you? Jacob's answer always touches my heart. He said, I'm 130 years old. Short and toilsome have been my years in my journey on earth. 130. And some people want to live to be 150. You're kidding me? Living with myself for 130 years? No, no. Please. But that's the reality that the psalmist is describing. Now, we live... As we we would never die. We live as, no, I have all these years ahead of me. What do we know? Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest to you that I die daily. When you open your eyes tomorrow, if you open them, first thing, thank you, Lord. I opened my eyes. I don't know if this is the last time I opened them on this earth. Dainly, we die. I've seen bodies in the turnpike in yellow bags because they went to work and they didn't know they were going to die that day on the turnpike. I don't want to be tragic. I'm just repeating to you what the psalmist says. Our life is but a vapor. Our lives are a sigh. It's like the morning, uh, morning clouds. Sometimes in this time of the year, especially, we go out of the house and it's really, really murky or cloudy or foggy. And at 10 o'clock, it's gone. psalmist says, that's our lives. It's like the fog in the morning. And that's why in the third place, he prays. And he offers a prayer. And what is the prayer? Verse 12, he prays for wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. There are two things that I, if I have to do them for you, I will do them and I will do them in love, believe me. But I need to tell you the truth. I will do them if I have to. But I hate performing weddings (laughs) and I hate doing funerals. We have Ezra with us who buried his wife recently. I hate both. Do you know what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7? It is better to be at a funeral than to be at a wedding. It is better to be at a funeral mourning a person than to be partying and dancing in one of our Latinos pachangas that we love so much. Why, Solomon says? Because there we learn wisdom there we learn the end of every person and there the heart is mended sorry to be the bearer of bad news but you're not going to leave this planet alive statistics and science has proven that a hundred percent of us will die now You may be, when Christ returns, you may be around and we will be, the ones who remain will be transformed and we'll be caught up in the air and we'll be forever with Christ. And we may have that hope. I'm not going to take that hope away from you. But other than that, we're in that 100% of we will die. Therefore, Moses says, then teach us to number our days in such a way That we may bring a heart of wisdom. You're raising your children. They drive you crazy. Yes. You guys drive us crazy. But let me say something to the parents. When they are gone. They are gone. And your time with them is over. Cherish it. Take use of it. Take profit of it. Spend time with them. Invest in them have your parents alive? I know it can be sometimes complicated. Use the time. Pray for wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Whatever projects you have, whatever dreams you have, and it's okay to have them. Lord, teach me to number my days that I may have a heart of wisdom, that I may understand my frailty. Verse 13, he prays for mercy. Return, O Lord, and have pity on your servants. The frailty of our life is a good time to be reminded of the reality that we are in dire need for mercy. There are people, and and I'll tell you, in case you believe or like prosperity gospel, I'm an example of prosperity gospel. I've told the Lord, I, I think I tell him every day, Lord, to my knowledge, I'm healthy. If I have something eating me away, I don't know it yet. To my knowledge, I'm healthy. I don't have any needs. I have a house. I have food. My wife is fine. She still lets me live with her. Um, So I have everything I need. I don't have any need. Honestly, I don't have anything to ask you for. And I've said that to the Lord. Except that I need mercy. Because I don't know a worst person alive. I don't know a more chief sinner than me. And I need infinite mercy. I need you to please remember me when you come in your kingdom, O Christ. And Father, I need you to see me through the righteousness of your Son. That's the only thing I need, honestly. And Moses says, Lord, have pity on us. Please remember us. Please remember that we are but dust. Sometimes you're sick, you have a cold. And you feel that your bones are hurting and you cannot even move. That's how frail we are. A tiny, sub-microscopic article called a virus, a combination of proteins, bring us down. Why? Because we are frail. Lord, remember that I am but dust. That was Job's complaint. When he was in pain, he said to the Lord, you don't understand me. You don't know what it is to be a man, to feel my pain. And isn't it wonderful that God took care of that when He sent His Son, born in the likeness of a woman, born under the law, born under the curse of the law, so that He may sympathize with all of our weaknesses, because He was made like us in all things but sin give you an example of my crazy things. I have problems with one eye, I have problems with one ear, I'm kind of clumsy, I don't have a lot of abilities, but I have an amazing sense of uh, smell. I don't know who smells better, Simba, the dog, or me. And my wife knows because I drive her crazy. Now sometimes you have to be in places I don't know, in a tram, subway, bus, in a foreign country during the summer. And this stench of human bodies hits my nose, and I don't know where to go because it's packed. And I always remember Jesus. He left his throne in heaven to put up with our stench. He left his throne in heaven to suffer hunger and thirst and loneliness and be made just like us we can pray even better than Moses pity us Jesus you know what it is to be human pity us and have mercy on us and thirdly he prays for satisfaction in God verses 14 and 15 satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love with your permanent love, with your ever going love. May I know that you love me. What does a child need the most? That mom and dad love me. What does a wife need the most? That her man loves her. And ladies, a man needs the same too. It doesn't matter how old he is. But what do we need the most if we don't have any of the three? God loves me. Moses prays, satisfy us in the morning with a sense of your love. But he loves us. We read it in the Bible. Yes, but may I feel it today, Lord. Because there are days we don't feel it. There are days we don't believe it. There are days we don't have any sense or any proof of it. Lord, show me your love that we may rejoice, he says, and be glad all our days that's all we need. Psalm 16. You are my greatest good. The psalmist told the Lord. All I want is you. Asaph in Psalm 73 after he complained and bickered and said all kinds of things against God. And finally he came to his senses. And then he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And aside from you, I want nothing my heart and my flesh may fail struggle with depression struggle with an ongoing illness struggle with fibromyalgia struggle with a crazy husband or with a crazy wife or whatever whatever you struggle with we all have something my heart and my f- flesh may fail me but God he is my portion forever more and then they i mean moses prays that we may be glad that we may see your glory that's how the psalm ends verse 16 make us glad for as many days as as we have seen evil let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children let the favor of the lord our god be upon us and establish the work of our hands yes establish the work of our hands Because in the meantime, we have to do stuff, right? We cannot be, we're not disembodied spirits. We cannot live in meditation all day long. There are some young men who want to go into the ministry. Oh, the bliss of studying the Word all day long. Oh, the bliss that you would never come to the ministry then. Because that's not the ministry. Find a job, get your hands caught, get your feet moving, and then come serve God's people when you find out exactly what they have to go through Monday through Saturday. Don't come to the ministry because of the bliss of studying God's word. That's not the way it works. That's not Jesus' example. He was a carpenter. He knew what was hard work. Now, it's okay to pray, God bless my work. Bless the labor of my hands. May I bless others through it. Isn't that the commandment of Ephesians 4? You stole? Steal no longer. But now work with your own hands. For what? To have more money. Awesome. Have more money. For what? To give more. So that you may give more. Oh, 10%. No, not 10%. 150%. 2,000%. Given the measure Jesus gave, who being rich made himself poor, so that in his poverty we might become rich. And I love to preach that in a church that doesn't have any paid staff. So we don't care if you give money or not. That's not the point. We care that you give yourselves to the Lord first. And as you give yourselves to the Lord, you labor and long and pray and serve for His kingdom and for His glory. So what's the conclusion of this? Well, the wonder of the incarnation brings closure to this psalm. Because when Moses wrote it, 1,600 years before Christ, there's something he didn't know, that we know. Oh, he may have seen it from the distance. Jesus said that Moses wrote about him. Yeah, but Moses didn't see Jesus. Oh, Moses saw Jesus by faith, certainly. 1 Corinthians 10 says that Jesus guided them through the desert. He was a column of fire, and he was a cloud of of, uh, protection during the day. Yes, 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 but Moses didn't know what you and I know. Moses didn't have the revelation of Christ and of the glory of God in the full display that we see it in the person of his son. And he is the one who explains the song, because in the Incarnation, this transcendent God was brought to a realm of space, time, matter and even suffering and sin. The word became flesh. Fascinating that from everlasting to everlasting you are God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was face to face with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. The Word made a tabernacle among us. And His name will be Emmanuel. Meaning God has come to be with us. God has come to be like one of us. And that is the subject of Scripture. That He came to save his people from their sins. God could have issued a decree and saved us from heaven, but his righteousness was only satisfied when he himself came and living innocent and without sin and guiltless, paid for the penalty of sin that their people, those who came, he came to save, deserved. And what do we do with that? Well, first of all, we rejoice. I don't care what's your temperament. If you know me, you know that I am not Mr. Party Guy, that when you guys have your parties and everybody's dancing, maybe I dance one or two and in a corner. because I don't want people to see me dancing, in spite of that I, the fact that I married a lady who could have spent every day dancing, and he actually dances alone at home and in the car when I'm driving. But I, I, I'm not the dancing type. It doesn't matter. If you are like me, you can still rejoice. That your sins have been forgiven. If you are like me, you can still rejoice that this frail life, this toilsome, burdensome, painful, long life, as Jacob said, is not all there is to it. Tell the righteous, says Isaiah, it will go well with him. Mercy and truth says Psalm 23, will chase us all the days of our lives. You know why? Because we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. In the meantime, give it all you got. Remember that, those of you who are older, that young man piece, give it all you got. Give it all you got at work, at school, at life, at home, whatever it is, give it all. Because Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because your labors in the Lord are never in vain. Amen. Father, take your word and use it according to our needs, according to your will, for your glory. And help us, Father, to face a new year. Some of us have been facing new years for a long time. And it's always the same, except when you intervene and expand our minds and our souls and our hearts. And we may see you in new light and in new dimensions. And that's what we pray. We pray that you help us to see your glory, to look for your glory, to long for your glory. And as we do it, that you help us to rejoice in you and in your salvation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.